So I wrote the first draft of this sermon on Inauguration Day on a plane. And I'm supposed to preach on the Beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. So right before my flight took off, I was reading the news. I saw the photographs of the divided crowds at Trump's inauguration. Supporters celebrating the day and angry protesters. While this so-called peaceful transition of peace was taking place, I didn't see a lot of peace. I saw a deeply divided nation of unrest, of emotion, of anger and alienation. The next day, I joined the Women's March in Philadelphia, and I felt encouraged and hopeful to see the solidarity around the nation and around the world. And yet I also found myself wondering whether the language of the march was inclusive enough and felt open to those who may have voted for Trump or may not share the exact same political opinions. Many of us got to felt part of something bigger that day, but is that bigger inclusive enough? And maybe there are even some of you today in today's audience who voted for Trump and support him and feel sick and tired of the constant judgment and disdain of liberals and progressives. This past election season was deeply emotional and Trump's very new presidency has shown little signs of healing the rifts in our country and creating any semblance of peace for the next four years. For many of us who have followed the news this past week, it has meant anxiety, despair, loss, worry, anger, depression. It feels much more like the start of American carnage than the end. So in times like this, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, first, let's figure out what peace is. The Beatitudes have been described as being cryptic, precise, and full of meaning. To be honest, I think everything Jesus does and says follows under that description. When he's describing what his kingdom of peace looks like, he doesn't give direct descriptions. He speaks in metaphors and stories. So here's a story that gives us some precise clues to what Jesus' peace looks like. So um, I'm about to read the passage, and uh, I accidentally gave too short a passage. Um, so what you'll see in your bulletins and on the screens won't be the full passage. I'll have to read a little bit extra. So you'll, you'll notice when that is. Um, so when Jesus had again crossed over the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him and the large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she had gotten worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she had been freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answers, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. 
And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But then they all laughed at him. So after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in with the, where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So one of the central characters in this story is a destitute woman, someone who had spent all her money trying to see doctors who might be able to heal her from her persistent bleeding, and rather than getting better, was getting worse. Any of you who have had to navigate the health system know how financially and emotionally draining it can be to see doctor after doctor and not get better. And not only was this woman suffering from physical pain, but under Jewish law, she was also considered unclean. That meant that anybody who came in contact with her would also become unclean and would be subject to extensive purification rituals. Also meant that she couldn't have sex. It's a very solid guess that she was unmarried or divorced, which for a woman at that time meant she had very little social standing. She was probably further ostracized since nobody could come into close contact with her. So the word peace in the New Testament draws its roots from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom connotes wholeness, prosperity, fulfillment. It's peace that isn't just the absence of conflict, but about people being able to live their life at the fullest. This woman certainly was not living a life of peace. She was experiencing physical pain, social rejection, and poverty. So this woman sneaks up to Jesus in the crowd and touches his garment, and suddenly she's miraculously healed, physically. So she's about to sneak off on her way and not bother Jesus anymore, except Jesus starts looking for her in the crowd. And eventually she, in fear, shares her entire story. Now she's terrified because she's been in a big crowd and she's been touching people, which means that she's made a lot of other people in the crowd unclean, which means that chances are when they find out what she's done, they're going to be very, very angry at her. Except that doesn't happen. Jesus listens to her. And then Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus restores the woman socially. He recognizes her publicly, praises her faith, calls her daughter. This regard from a respected religious leader will enable her to re-enter community. He gave her a bigger peace than what she looked for initially maybe even more than what she thought she deserved. He restored her to a full and good life. So when Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, 
It's not just about being nice, about being polite, or pretending to agree with people when you really don't. It's about seeking prosperity and wholeness for everyone, blessing, a good life for all. Peacemakers enable more people to live a full and good life. We all have people that we know, ourselves, our friends, our families, our neighbors, who aren't living their lives to the fullest, whether it's due to sickness, fear, worry, anxiety, conflict in the family, not having a job or not having a job that's good enough. We are to help others live a good life. So how do we become peacemakers? Well, let's look back at Jesus. Jesus invites this woman to speak, and he listens to her for a long time while she shares the entire truth. And because he was surrounded by a crowd of people, he was also inviting the entire crowd to listen to her, to listen to her and her experience and to gain a deeper understanding of her story. Seeking peace starts with listening, active listening. Active listening is when we listen to people with the intent of truly understanding what someone is saying. So Peaky Seeking Peace starts with listening, active listening. Active listening is when we pay attention to someone fully when they are speaking, when we're really trying to take in what they're saying, what they're feeling, what their perspective is. We're really trying to put ourselves in their shoes. And to be honest, we don't really do that all that often. Uh, most of the time when we're listening, we're maybe thinking about what to say next, thinking about our to-do list, or maybe somebody said something, you know, they talked about food, so now I'm thinking about food. Um, so a lot of times we don't really do it that well. And actually, my husband will probably attest that I'm not that great a listener a lot of the time. It takes a lot of effort to slow ourselves down and to focus completely on listening to another person. And listening isn't just for people who have different political beliefs from us. There are so many instances in our lives and relationships where we do not have the peace that Jesus wants us to have, and we can start there. Um, a few years ago, I developed a pretty tense relationship with one of my colleagues. We're having a lot of really snippy and frustrating interactions. Um, so one time, I was telling him about a client that I was finding frustrating, um, how it was hard to get their attention that for work that required their input. And he suddenly interrupted me and started with what seemed to me at the time telling me what to do. Right? He said, you should pick up the phone and say this to the client. And I snapped back at him, saying, no, I'm fine. Now, that may not seem all that serious. Um, I'm not that great an actress. Uh, but you have to know that when I'm angry, I'm usually like, dead silent, and I radiate cold judgment. <laughs> so the fact that I even spoke up at that moment probably meant that I was pretty harsh. Um, and my colleague just looked away and walked out the room. Um, so I know something had gone wrong. And I was also learning that I was not always being fair in my interpretations of my colleague. So the next day, I asked him for his side of the story. Um, he heard my complaining about the client, and he thought I was asking for help. He wasn't trying to tell me what to do. He was just offering some ideas. And when I reacted the way he did, I did, he felt confused, rejected, and shut down. And yes, there are some frustrating assumptions there that you can draw about gender, race, and age. But at the same time, he was trying to help. And I got to share my side of the story as well. And we figured out some solutions. 
he'd clarify if he was just offering ideas, and I would also try to have a gentler and kinder tone if I needed to tell him that he was overstepping. That was the start of a peace and openness in our relationship that had been tense for many, many years. I think it's been over four years since we had that conversation, and I'm happy to say that we have a much healthier and collaborative relationship now. And when we run into snags, uh, we've developed the habit of listening to each other and inquiring more deeply. Last year, Brad preached a sermon series about the importance of building habits over time. So to become peacemakers, let us develop habits of listening and cultivating curiosity to learn another person's perspective. And we can practice it more, even with people we already love. So all this listening leads us to the second part of being a peacemaker. Peacemakers love others, including their enemies. Part of Jesus' greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, he doesn't just tell us to love our neighbors, he tells us to love our enemies. Last October, the Washington Post published an incredible story about a man named Derek Black. In 2008, Derek Black was 19, and he was a prominent leader in the white nationalist movement, full of neo-Nazis and former Ku Klux Klan members. So we're talking about a group comprised of super evil people. So Derek uh, went to a progressive liberal arts school, because, and because he wanted to make friends, he sort of hid his racial views for about a year. Eventually, people figured out his true identity, and that was publicized across the college campus, and he was immediately shunned socially. Um, I was reading through some of the online comments that he got in response, and um, to just give you an example of some of the responses, I just want this guy to die a painful death along with his entire family. Is that too much to ask? So needless to say, most people stayed away from him and left him alone. Who wants to be associated with a white neo-Nazi? Except maybe an Orthodox Jew, one named Matthew Stevenson. Matthew Stevenson, um, along with a group of about eight or ten other people, would host a weekly Shabbat dinner because he was the only Orthodox Jew at the college and wanted to share his tradition with others. And Matthew decided to start inviting Derek to these dinners. And Derek joined. And over time, Matthew and Derek genuinely became friends and had many conversations about their views. And over the course of many years, Black's views eventually changed. Soon after graduating from college, he posted this public disavowal. I have resolved that it is in the best interests of everyone involved to be honest about my slow but steady disaffiliation from white nationalism. I can't support a movement that tells me that I can't be a friend to whomever, whomever I wish or that other people's races require me to think of them in a certain way or be suspicious of their advancements. Of the rise of white racist national sentiment in Trump's election, he now says, it's scary to know that I helped spread that stuff, and now it's out there. Note the word friend. It wasn't great arguments or facts over Facebook feeds, but kindness and listening, a friendship over a long period of time that transformed Derek. And while this story doesn't go into detail about his friends, I also wonder if Derek changed them. Maybe they came to understand where he came from. Perhaps Derek wanted to feel proud of his identity. 
Perhaps he wanted to make his father proud, since his father was also a leader in that movement. Maybe he wanted to feel part of a community, part of a battle for what seemed right at the time. Suddenly, white nationalists are no longer evil, horrific people that we share nothing in common with, but rather flawed people like you and me. Walter Wink, a biblical theologian who wrote extensively on nonviolent action, writes, To write off whole groups of people as intrinsically racist and violent is to accept the very same premise that upholds racist and oppressive regimes. He goes on to say, Love of enemies is trusting God for the miracle of divine forgiveness. If God can forgive and redeem and transform me, I must also believe that God can work such wonders with anyone. We are all transformed by love and authentic relationships. We cannot judge and hate those who disagree with us. We must build genuine relationships with them, see them as people, connect them, connect with them, to not dismiss them or judge them, even if it seems like they are against everything that we are. On Friday, after the election back in November, I was at an annual conference of a bipartisan organization where I serve on the board, and I was speaking with the CEO of a large company about training that we want to do with our company in the spring. When we finished talking about the work, which was a wonderful conversation, she suddenly started talking about how excited and happy she was that Donald Trump was elected president. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Here was a woman of a thousand-plus person company that I looked up to. Um, she was very smart, very insightful, yet always kind and gentle and listened well to others. And here she was talking about how excited she was that Donald Trump was becoming president. So somehow, by the grace of God, I was able to hold back my emotion and listen and to acknowledge her perspective her concerns about excessive government regulation, her beliefs in being pro-life, losing freedom, and the costs of health care. I still don't fully understand why she voted the way she did, but I feel connected to her in a different kind of way. I also know that she and I both share the joy of being outdoors, whether that's hiking or backpacking or rock climbing, and I appreciated that she acknowledged my fears about the growing racist and anti-immigrant sentiments that accompanied Trump's rise, and that troubled her as well. I don't know her full story yet, but I hope I will get to hear more of it, and I hope we can have a relationship that changes her and changes me as well. I have more, may have more to learn from her than she does from me. Listening can help people shape a better future together, better than left and right, progressive or conservative, solutions that can address the deep concerns of all involved. My conversation with my colleague was a small example of that kind of generative listening that led us to build a better relationship. A really amazing example of generative listening comes from a prestigious prep school in South Africa right after apartheid ended. The school accepted its first class of black students. And within the first month of the school semester, the president of the Black Student Union walks into the principal's office and listed his demand. Pass one, pass all. Essentially, the demand is, you cannot pass us as individuals. You have to pass us all as a group. Now imagine how the principal could have responded. This request is absurd. I'm absolutely saying no. We've always evaluated people on an individual basis, and we cannot pass you all as a group. But he didn't choose to do that. 
The principal and the administration of the school chose to listen, and the black students chose to listen as well. The administration learned that the students were worried that they would not get the adequate support they needed to succeed in the prep school. Because of apartheid, they had come from substandard school systems and did not have the same preparation as white students. Furthermore, they also came from a culture that was more collaborative. So some of the things that they would do to support each other may be considered um, more like cheating with white culture. The so students also learned that the administration were really worried that if they lowered their standards and just passed anyone, that the school would lose its reputation for producing students that would succeed in college. So through this dialogue and through this listening, the school was able to craft policies to help black students get the support they needed to succeed while sustaining the school's reputation for high expectations. Listening and loving at an individual level can lead to bigger systemic solutions. Which leads me to my next point. Listening and loving people at an individual level doesn't prevent us from addressing injustice at a systemic level. In fact, peacemakers resist injustice. I have a neighbor who cuts lawns on our blocks. It's extra income for him because his job as a contractor waxing floors at Sherwin-Williams doesn't provide steady enough income. He often still finds himself short on cash, especially in the winter. I can love my neighbor by being friends with him, helping him out if he needs it, but I can also love my neighbor by supporting policies that promote better jobs, that pay a living wage and benefits. Peacemakers enable more people to live a full and good life by seeking to change bigger systemic policies and practices. Peacemakers help build a world where there is more justice, less oppression, and where more people have the possibility of living a good and full life. There's even a hint of this in the story about Jesus we heard earlier. Jesus spoke to this woman while he was on his way to visit the daughter of Jairus. Now, Jairus was an important person. He was a ruler of the synagogue, probably a well-respected leader in his community, probably wealthy as well, and his daughter was dying. And every second of time was precious. Jesus should have been on an ambulance, not stopping to have a long and involved conversation with a beggar on the street. Jesus was making a bigger statement. This woman, who was rejected by her society, is just as important, just as worthy of Jesus' time and effort as a synagogue leader's daughter. Jesus' action sends a symbolic message about what peace looks like in God's kingdom. The social systems that say that a disabled, impoverished, unmarried woman is worth less than a well-regarded male religious leader are no longer in place. In his last days, Jesus enters the temple in Jerusalem and gets angry at the money changers in the temple for charging exorbitant rates and preventing people, for preventing people from worshiping God. So I was trying to think of some modern-day analogies, and they're not quite tight analogies, but they're things that make me angry. So <laughs> rich executives making millions of dollars while people making their products are not paid enough to live above the poverty line. Financial institutions targeting people with deceptive lending practices. Corporations refusing to take responsibility for the environmental damage and major debilitating health problems that they cause. Jesus is angry. With the money changers, he goes in and turns over their tables. He makes a whip and drives people out of the temple. There is a righteous anger that we can have in the face of injustice that can lead to assertive action. 
it is not always bad to be angry. Jesus held a deep love for messed up people like you and me, while simultaneously holding a deep hatred for the oppressive systems that we're part of. And while he loved people, he is not afraid to get angry at people who oppress others. Resist the systems of oppression that we have in our world today. Call people to be accountable if they cause injustice. At the same time, love people, those who are oppressed and even those who oppress others, because let's be honest, we're probably both at the same time. Listen to others, become friends, connect, hear their deep story, and write a new and improved story together. That is peacemaking. There are so many places where we need more peace, so I'm not telling you that you need to engage everywhere. Rather, I encourage you to see that an integral part of living a good life is to play your part in changing unjust systems and for you to discern where and how you may best contribute. So here are some ideas, some big, some small, for you to consider. Remember that big societal changes have come from small groups of people taking bold steps who were then joined by many others. Rosa Parks was an ordinary woman riding the bus who decided to say no. The beginning to the end of Chinese foot binding came about when groups of men pledged that they would not marry women with bound feet. Who knows how God will use you? So see these ideas as a list of possibilities, not a set of things that you have to do or feel guilty for not doing. So here are some possibilities for you. Be informed. Read the news to understand what's happening. Financially support news publications. Or if you read the news a little too much and are constantly feeling anxious, maybe just read a little bit less. I certainly may need to read a little bit less. Be engaged civically. Vote if you're eligible. Protest. Put Senator Toomey and Casey's phone number on speed dial and call them to share how you feel about different issues. Run for public office or support someone who is. Join one of the campaigns that are encouraging people to be civically engaged, like the 10 actions in 100 days from the Women's March. If you yourself have experienced injustice, Tell your own story with graciousness and kindness so that people can understand your experience. And be forgiving if they ask stupid questions. I've certainly asked some stupid questions myself, which is hypocritical considering how irritated I get when people try to ask me where I'm from. Look for bright spots and tell more people about them. Not everything is doom and gloom, really. Look, for example, of places where things are working, where things have improved. There are plenty of those, and they can give us hope in dark times. Recognize patterns. If you see someone experiencing difficulty, don't just see it as an isolated case. Look for the bigger pattern. Buy from companies who have ethical business practices. Now, I'm always wary of consumerism as a means to redeem yourself. But I do believe that the small choices of hundreds of consumers can change business practices. The Nike boycotts in the 90s went a long way to change labor practices in the apparel industry. Organic farming is on the rise because people buy organic food. Now, not everyone has the financial privilege of being able to do so, but it is something to consider if you can and are able to. Give generously, volunteer, or work for organizations that support causes that you care about for a world that reflects more of the kingdom of God. And if that organization doesn't exist, 
Figure out how to do it yourself, or better yet, with a group of people. Raise children so they become the type of people that you hope the world will have more of. And if you don't have children, you can still teach, support, and encourage the children that may be in your lives. Influence the policies and practices of groups that you are part of, whether that's your community groups, your workplace, your school, your friends and family. Speak up if you notice when someone is being marginalized, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Shape policies to be more inclusive. Pray. Actually, I think we should all do this. The first line of the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that more of God's just kingdom would come into our world. And pray for those who are marginalized, vulnerable, and experiencing injustice. Pray for our leaders. That feels really hard to do right now, but we're supposed to. Discover something that you care deeply about and dedicate your time to learn about it, understand it, and advocate for it. Frederick Bueckner says, The place God calls you to is a place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Find what gives you joy that might direct your journey as a peacemaker. Now, that's quite a list of things to consider. And many of you may already be doing a lot of this. So I thought about ending this sermon with a reminder to balance fighting against the system with taking care of yourself and your family. However, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that many people have sacrificed their own comfort, security, sometimes even their lives to change unjust systems. Jesus tells people to be radical, to lose their life in order to gain it. Jesus gave his own life, and many of his disciples did too. Even Jairus didn't interrupt Jesus' conversation with the woman, even though his daughter was dying. He was risking his daughter's life. Who knows what God may be calling you to do in times like this? I certainly don't. Brianna's confession last week of things usually work out for me resonated with me. In particular, I've managed to hit the trifecta of having a job that I love that pays well and makes the world a little bit better. I'm incredibly lucky, although it might be more accurate to say that I'm lucky as a result of a certain set of privileges that I have around education, language, nationality, and class. Had I been born just 25 miles away from where I was born, maybe I'd be working in a sweatshop somewhere. So I think there is more that I can do. These last months, last couple of months, have felt like a wake-up call for me. And so I will be exploring what this call to resist injustice means for my life. Maybe something simple, maybe something more radical. I don't know yet. I will have to listen and find out. But what I do know is that this responsibility to resist injustice is a gift, a blessing from God. Peacemakers shall be called children of God. I can't imagine a greater honor. In peacemaking, we share in Jesus' work and join God's family. There is abundant blessing, deep joy as we seek peace at the personal level, listening and loving those around us, friends, strangers, and enemies, And likewise, there is blessing as we seek peace systemically. Jesus cares about creating a better world with peace for everyone. That's God's kingdom coming into this world. And God wants the good life, not just for you, but for everyone. And part of the good life 
is to seek it for others. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.